Welcome to Conversations with Dr. Jennifer, a collection of interviews on the topics of relationships, sexuality, spirituality, and more, all featuring Dr. Finlayson Fife. Hey everyone, through Labor Day, we're having a buy one, get one 50% off sale on all of my online courses. Click on the link in the show notes for details. You are listening to Pivot Parenting, episode 118, Cutting Apron Strings with special guest, Jennifer Finlayson Fife. All right, my friends, I have the honor of hosting Jennifer Finlayson Fife for the third time on Pivot Parenting. And every time she comes on, it's always spectacular. And today is no exception. We are talking about letting go of your child as they launch, cutting the apron strings, letting them spread their wings and be an adult autonomous of us parents. And it's a phenomenal conversation and I can't wait for you to hear it. Before we get started, I want to introduce you to Jennifer because she is such an inspiration to me. I know that everybody who listens to her loves her and She is specifically a relationship and sexuality educator and coach. She's also a licensed clinical professional counselor in Illinois with a PhD in counseling psychology from Boston College. And you can learn more about her and all the goodness she has to offer on her website, which is finlayson-fife.com. Welcome, Jennifer. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad that you're here. This is Jennifer's third time on Pivot Parenting, and it's always remarkable. So thank you. Thank you. Today, we are going to be talking about apron strings. And for my listeners, I want you to know Jennifer has a couple different podcasts. One is free, and it's podcasts like this one where she's guested. The other podcast is a paid podcast, and it's called Room for Two. And if you like getting your mind blown, you definitely need this podcast. (laughs) It's amazing. And I was listening to episode 20 and it was, it's always a husband and wife, right? Like you always Mm -hmm. have the two people Mm -hmm. on. That's what I've heard every time. Mm -hmm. And the husband was still really into... Enmeshed with his mother. Yes. yes, Enmeshed Mm -hmm. with his mother. And I was like, oh, if we could nip this problem in the bud so that Mm. moms and dads are letting go of their kids and launching them, Mm. then they wouldn't need couples counseling in 15 years, potentially. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes. So that's why I invited Dr. Finlayson Fife on. Mm -hmm. So the first thing, and we're just going to dive right in. Mm. The most important element to me as a coach, and I'm sure that it is to you as well, is we don't want to just say, well, this is how you fix it. We want to understand what's going on Mm -hmm. behind the scenes, the backstory, so that we know the reasons why. Right. So why... I have some theories, but I want to hear yours. Mm -hmm. Why do we want to hold on to our kids and have that codependency with our children? Mm. Well, there's at least a couple reasons, but one of which is just if you, if you're a invested parent and you've expended hours and hours and blood, sweat and tears and energy towards this child, 
it's hard to just send them on their way. Do you know what I mean? Because sure. of the sense that your identity and sense of purpose is wrapped around them. Yes. Right. And so this can be especially true for full-time mothers in the sense that, that they've invested a lot of time and energy and identity into that person. And so it is probably the greatest act of love to let that child truly go because motherhood is a job or parenthood is a job in which if you do it well, you, you work yourself out of a job. And I don't mean that you are ever dispensable. I don't mean that you ever aren't actually still a valuable and essential part of any adult child's life, but you're not um, keeping yourself as the epicenter of their lives anymore. You're right. needed in that role. Yeah. You need to be the epicenter when they're very young, but if you're really doing your job, you're gradually stepping out of that position because they're ideally growing into more autonomy and the ability to leave and cleave to another person. And so what I think is often not, you know, I have a good friend who, who had a child getting married and uh, she's very excited about it, felt really good about the person her child was marrying. Um, but in the conversations was also grief, right? And I yeah. think sometimes we don't really talk about that or recognize that act your child doing exactly what you hope for them to do, go off to college, what, you know, get yeah. married has loss connected to it. And our ability to metabolize that loss and to grieve that loss without infecting our child with a sense of guilt or that they're somehow betraying us because they're moving on and living their lives <laughs> to really handle that sense of loss and let them go is often a very unarticulated act of courage. And some people don't do it. They stay meddling and entangled and, you know, even down to the, the, to the decisions around the wedding that oftentimes the struggles between the parents of the respective bride and groom, not even the bride and groom, <laughs> right? Because there's this kind of sense of who owns these people you know, yep. or who's going to have the loyalty or who's going to spend, you know, that the couple is often handling the expectations of parents around Christmas rather than the question of what is right for us as a couple. And yeah. so this is a very typical kind of enmeshment or entanglement because of that difficulty of stepping out of an old role and into the right one, given where your child is in their development and progression into adulthood. Yeah, I've often, and you tell me what you think. I've kind of seen this in my coaching, another reason why this might be. Um, but I see that reason too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you've often said that sex is the canary in the coal mine. Yeah. If there's bad sex, there's other issues going on. Mm -hmm. To me also, if you are leaning towards your child and dependent on them to bring you joy and happiness, that yes. can also be a canary in the coal mine yeah, for other personal relationships, whether you're married or divorced, that there's something lacking elsewhere. Absolutely. In fact, a lot of couples go into kind of crisis as the kids start to leave because 
the kids have been a kind of surrogate intimacy for yes. one or both of the parents. And the one thing often, they have in common. Yeah. And what has often not been de- being dealt with is either the marriage, the level of intimacy in the marriage. And I don't mean just sexual intimacy. I just mean like the level of cohesion in the couple, but also, you know, if, you know, and in a, in a lot of religious training kind of teaches this idea, but a lot of women almost feel like they shouldn't have an identity outside of their kids. So when you don't have a sense of who you are independent of the role of mother, for example, it can make letting go of that role be very disorganizing, very disorienting, uh, like, like crisis level of who am I actually after all that I've done. And, you know, I had a good friend who was like, gave, she was, is such a good mother. She did so much, um, And then when her kids left, she had this deep sense of like crashing of identity, kind of like, you know, here, this is supposedly the most important work we can do, but why is it that I feel that I have no, no kind of larger cultural acknowledgement of that? Why do I feel so devoid of a sense of who I am? And I think that's not a unique experience at all. So the tempting thing to do is to stay in that role more than is actually needed with adult children or with children trying to marry and really create an intimacy with a spouse. Yes. One of the common themes with my clients is that, you know, we're coaching on what their kid is doing, but it always comes back to, I don't know who I am. Yes, exactly. That's a really, really common one. Yes. And that is a psychosocial stage of development is that now where am I going to give and where am I going to create value in the world? Because we created it in our home and it shifts and it's a different kind of value. It's not a really time consuming one anymore. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. And yeah, that question of who am I? It's, it's easy in a sense. I mean, I don't mean to dismiss the difficulty of parenting, especially young children, but when those little children revolve around you and need you and love you, and no matter who you are, you're the center of their universe, right? Yeah. It's feels good. It's amazing. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, there's challenging things about parenting, but you get so much validation in a sense, especially when they're young, uh, that it, makes it worth it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They pull you in with their little arms around your neck yeah. and you just like melt. Yeah. I remember my son saying to me, I think you're amazing, pretty mom. You know, he was only four or something, but I was just like, okay, could I love a child more than this? I don't think so. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. No. So, uh, yeah. So that kind of validation of being needed and being central it feels good and is is good. It really is good at that time. Yeah. It's necessary. It's very adaptive. But I absolutely think it's true that if if as we're needed less, um, if we don't have other identities, other senses of who we are and how we make a difference in the world, or you know things that matter to us, then unwittingly, we will often keep inserting ourselves into this needing to be needed role to our kids' detriment. And the paradox is that then the kids start taking care of the parent. You yeah. know, the kid will like take in without the parent tracking it as that, you know, it's right. like, well, 
it will really upset my parents if we don't go home for Christmas. So, you know, we really need to go there because they, you know what I mean? Like it's the kind of reverse caretaking that starts to happen, even though often the parents can't see that they're pulling for that kind of accommodation or don't want to acknowledge it. Right. That leads into the second question that I wanted to ask. First off, are there any other major reasons why you see parents participating in? Well, I have a darker version, a darker reason, which is, you know, I mean, there's this kind of not wanting to lose a sense of connection, but I've also seen parents who actually don't want their child to go and thrive, don't want them to actually love their wife more, for example, than their mother. Because then they'll feel abandoned or betrayed? Yeah, well, there's that, but also it's kind of, it's a little more competitive or the way I maybe I'm thinking about it is I suffered in marriage. I don't want you to abandon me and have a different or better experience. Okay. Now, now not every parent is going to do that kind of thing, sure. but that certainly is something I've seen where it's like, I actually want to kind of interfere so that we're in the same soup. Yep. And good parents will say, even if I've had challenges, I want you to thrive. I want you to do better. Like that it's an honor of me for you to take what I gave you and for you to improve upon it. But I do think there's parents that meddle in a more, not just a, gosh, I feel lonely way, but in a more intrusive and damaging way. Like to stay in the boiling pot with me. Yeah. And it's more of a narcissistic behavior of the parent. Like I, I'm going to stay the epicenter. I'm going to stay the focus, even if it's a negative one. And I'm going to pressure your loyalty to me and away from your marriage and your family. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I hope you don't see that that often, but I (laughs) can definitely see how that would play out. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So how is this habit of holding on when it's no longer helpful? How does that play out How for both parties? what, How detrimental is that? Well, it's highly detrimental um, because it's, it's teaching the children, the adult children, how to be in the marriage and making it really costly to really leave and cleave, to really be in the marriage. So, you know, just as a contrast, I was very fortunate to have my husband's parents really understand truly the sanctity of marriage and to both have it themselves and to role model it for their kids. So I remember when John and I first got married, we had like a ceramic countertop and I would always like cut stuff directly on it. You know, I'd like, wouldn't touch the blade to the ceramic, but I just wouldn't pull out a cutting board. And John was like, you're going to hurt the ceramic. You really should pull out a cutting board. <laughs> and I would just kind of keep doing what I wanted. <laughs> sure. And, um, and so one time John was talking to his mom on the phone and he's like, mom, does it damage ceramic to cut directly on it? You know, like he's basically saying, do you agree <laughs> with me as a woman who's done a lot of cutting on <laughs> services? And she just like came back with the wisest response, which was, I'm sure you and Jennifer can figure out the answer to that question. (laughs) Brilliant. (laughs) I mean, she just understood. I think she just intuited that I was there or whatever. Yeah. And she's just basically saying, I'm not going to meddle, even though I'm being invited to meddle. I am not going to, I'm going to model that the loyalty is to the two of you as a couple. And so don't, 
pull me into in a way that's going to interfere with that. And I deeply appreciate that because it was a clear message about what our work was as a couple and what they were going to support and back up that they wanted us to thrive as a couple, right? If a parent though is doing things like siding with their biological child against the spouse. Now it's one thing if your spouse is in an abusive situation, truly, or something, that's different sure. of course, because that's a different level of need for intervention. But if your child is just trying to do the work of working out a marriage, it can be very tempting to want to side with your biological offspring and be like, you, you know, you poor thing, you're not getting treated right way or whatever. And to kind of vilify the, I mean, here's another reason, Heather, that I didn't say before is it's also difficult to accommodate another person into your family culture, right? So, you know, my first sister-in-law, you know, we were a family of eight and I feel sorry for her because she was like the first one who had to kind of step into a family system that was pretty cohesive. You know, we lived on 10 acres, just the 10 of us or whatever, before anybody got married. And so we were pretty close to each other. And so to have to like find a place in that system can be uncomfortable. So a lot of times, again, there's loss associated as much as there is gain, or at least there is some loss. And so the family's ability to stretch and to accommodate and to welcome and to make room for other ideas and needs and thoughts about how Christmas should go, for example, or how the family reunion should go, that takes some kindness and some generosity and some tolerance of growth. So that's just another reason that just came to me. So, um, so anyway, when parents don't do that or try to exclude, well, it's teaching the child to not really cleave and honor the marriage partnership as primary. And that's very destructive because resentments come up immediately. Like, wait, who are you married to your mother or to me? Who are you married to your family or to me? Yes, exactly. Between two things that they love. And that's That's exactly it's cruel. Right. Exactly. And right where if a parent's doing it well, it's like, no, your primary job is your marriage. And we're here to support that. Like that's, we love you both. And so go do your marriage well and, and whatever is needed, uh, we'll accommodate that. That's good parenting. Yeah. I love it. How does that play out since we're talking to the parents primarily on this podcast if we see ourselves doing this, what are we setting our child up for other than having to choose? And is there anything else that you see play out long-term here? Well, I do think, you know, kind of going to the the, the episode that you talked about, um, I think that's a very typical scenario in which a child is kind of what I would call a hero child. Mm-hmm. So they've grown up with a with a parent who is needy or demanding. And that child learns to be the solver or the fixer as the hero child. So unwittingly, they've already, you know, they may not even be conscious of it, but they've learned to be kind of an over-functioner, that they're doing what makes mom feel okay. They're doing what makes dad not be upset. They are learning how to be a fixer of trouble. 
So what often happens is they'll go and marry somebody who is also needy. Now, now anybody that needs to be needed like that is also needy, right? In the way that I think about it, sure. it's also a to be gratified position, right? But it looks like I'm supposed to be the heroic, strong one. And then often there's two poles of the family and of the spouse that are pulling in a kind of competitive, like, who are you going to be, who are you going to take care of? Who are you going to solve? And so there can often be this kind of struggle, but the person that's the solver doesn't often recognize that they have instinctively gone and set up that kind of meaning because that's how they know how to love. That's how they know how. And so in the, in the episode that you talked about, I worked with them over several meetings, but he was the primary shifting point in that he recognized the way his mother was still pulling on him and how it had caused trouble, not just in his marriage, but even in his life to always be the strong one, the able one, you know, to be the fixer, the solver. That's and a lot of he, pressure. Yes. A ton of pressure. And you never get to kind of live your life and actually be in a partnership because the marriage then replicates some kind of caretaking. And he, I think the, he really made a dramatic shift because once he kind of woke up to it, he's like, wait, I'm not going to do this anymore. And, you know, I don't know which episode you listen to in terms of the progression, but the wife overheard him talking to his mother and confronting like, look, you're interfering with my marriage and I, and I need you to stop. And that was so, she was so grateful to see him really literally grow up and change the loyalty. Not that he's now going to do whatever his wife says kind of thing, but he's actually choosing the marriage and stepping out of that over-functioning role. And I don't know if you've gotten to this, but she wrote later just saying like, we haven't even talked about our sex life, but our sex life has gotten dramatically better because there's this deep sense of really choosing each other. Even if it's many years into the marriage, we've finally actually created a boundary around the two of us. Yeah. I listen to all of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I love it when you have couples on for multiple times because you get the follow-up, which is so so important to see. Yeah. Okay. So what would you prescribe as the step-by-step process of getting to this point? Because we don't, what we don't want, and I've seen this very intimately around me is that sometimes parents want to go from zero to 60, like, okay, you graduated and now just leave and go figure everything out. Like, Yes. Right. We don't want a really thick apron string and then we cut it all at once. No, definitely. We don't want that. And also you don't want to say, well, okay, if I'm over-involved, fine. Now I'm not going to be at all. (laughs) You don't want that active thing either because they're both immature positions. Exactly. So what the, the better position is, but it's qualitatively different. That is, it pulls for something better from us that's partly why it's hard. It's not in the middle. It's something qualitatively higher. Yeah. And that is like, I'm going to care enough to be involved and to know how you are without meddling. Yeah. Right. So, or I'm, 
you know, I've sometimes talked about this on this podcast. When my son was going through a hard time, he was saying, mom, you're a terrible listener because I would, I would hear enough. And then I'd want to tell him, well, go do this. Well, don't do that. Try that. You know, I mean, just Here's how like, you fix it. Yes. And doing a terrible job because I would never do that with a client, but a client isn't my child. So the meaning's entirely different. You know? We're so much more emotionally invested. Yeah. Right. So when I'm like, ah, you know, you can't be, that doesn't, you know, yeah. I'm just dying to solve it. So I wasn't listening. But then the way I wanted to correct that was to like, just sort of not know anything, just kind of like, well, still not listen. Because right? it's so hard to of, listen. Right. So instead of micromanage, I just yeah. wanted to be obtuse and not know. And I'm like, that's not yeah. loving either. Like, that's just like trying to manage through ignorance. And so the harder thing qualitatively was to know, to understand, to allow him to explain things that he was trying to sort out. And care about him figuring out his path to care about him while he was sorting out how to do things better. And it's not that I couldn't ever give input or something, but it wasn't being driven by my anxiety because I was trying, you know, imperfectly, but trying to calm myself and love him as in know him and care about him, stay involved, like care, but not try to control or disconnect. Those are the two immature things. Yeah. One thing that I've noticed to be helpful is our brain subconsciously is telling us that this is a problem. Yes. That our children aren't supposed to have difficult times, that they are supposed to have to figure things out the hard way. Right. And if we can recognize that lie and just be like, no, struggle's okay. Well, yeah, fundamental even to life. Yeah. And, and you're absolutely right. Like somehow if they're struggling, it means I've done something wrong and yeah. I have to fix it. Yep. <laughs> Rather than no, the struggle belongs to my child. Like that's how they're going to get their muscles. Human. That's how yeah. they're going to figure out who they are. And it's hard to care without controlling. I mean, right. Because it's like, look, I care about the, the uh, consequences of this. I care about the outcome of this, but I'm, it's not my job to solve it. And so it's really loving to be clear about what is our job and what is not our job and to stay engaged even when we're seeing somebody do their job not so well. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So I think that that's really loving stuff. Yeah. Well, I find myself slipping to, into that trap when emotions are high. Yes, exactly. And oh, I, yeah. I really have to just ground myself and be like, you know what? I experienced similar things back in the dinosaur age. Yes. <laughs> They'll be fine. Wait, and some wait, of those things are true. the best experiences that we can have. They hurt. And I think, yeah, to not make it mean anything about us, like yes. we didn't teach them properly or we need to fix yes. it. And then that maybe this is according to plan and nothing here has gone wrong, that this is part of the experience. That's right. That helps me and how I teach my clients to be able to hold the space for them to have their experience and be in it with them in a way that is helpful and not answering. Yeah, exactly. So I think, you know, the idea came back to me, which is just in line with what you're saying, which sometimes it helps me to think about, uh, talk to my child, my adolescent child or young adult child, like they're someone else's child, because then it allows me to, all these ways that I'm making it about me that are totally unhelpful. 
is just kind of take that away and just think if this is just another person's child, well, I would be like, they're such a good kid. Like they're doing so many things well. And, and yeah, okay. Duh, they're struggling with that. I struggled with that when I was at, you know, I also had those questions. It just somehow gets so much easier yeah. To just see that they're in a normal developmental process, like you say, that I can, if I'm being honest with myself, relate to many of those questions that I hadn't had even close to figured out at that point in my life. And to just respect them as a child of God, a child of the universe here working through these meanings, and to just respect them in that process. And they can feel that respect if you have it. You know, they open up to you more because they can feel that you really do you don't you don't discredit them for being in the normal human experience of sorting out important questions about who they are and what they value. Yeah. Another step that I find um helpful when we're thinning the strings is to stop thinking that we know what's best for mm, our exactly. adolescent and young adult kids. We think yeah. that we're smarter and sometimes we are, sometimes we're not, <laughs> but yeah. us telling them that not helpful. No, not at all helpful. It's true. It's just not helpful. And I think, you know, my, my parents were maybe just too busy because they had eight children and yeah, and a lot to do, but I just didn't have that micromanaging pressure, which was really good for me. I did know that I was cared about. Yep. I knew if I was really in a tight spot, they would be there. But that kind of freedom, in a sense, really gave me a lot of room to figure out my path. And I only have three children, so I can be more involved than is helpful, I think, sometimes. And <laughs> <laughs> so I think I've been like, you know, give my kids the space I had. Like, just let them sort it out. They're going to be okay. They're good people. They are able. And um, they want to live good lives, too. And and if they can feel that, the one thing I really know I had growing up is I had my parents' trust. I mean, whether or not I deserved it, I don't know. But they definitely could see the good and honored the good. And I think offering that to our children while they sort out their path is the ideal combination, that confidence in their ultimate ability and the space to sort it out. Yeah. I like how you just said seeing the good. Yes. Which we need to verbalize to our kids. I also think it's really important to normalize the bad and the struggle and the base human. Absolutely. As like, yeah, I, yes. I, I did those things too. I can tell you about how they didn't serve me long-term, the mistakes yes. that I made and you still might go out and make them. And that's right. I get it. Cause I did. Yes. Or whatever. Yeah. For them to see your humanity, to see where you were confused. You know, I remember talking to one of my, one of my kids about, you know, I really didn't have many friends in high school. I really didn't. I was struggling socially because this child was struggling somewhat. And so they asked like, well, when did you start to have friends? You know, like, how long did it take? Maybe like, next week. No. Like mid twenties. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like, think oh, great. But you know, but still it helps because there's this sense of things do ultimately work out or ultimately you have time. And I think that's helpful yeah. for figuring it out. Yeah, no. And I think for me too, it's important for my kids to see that some of the stuff I'm still wrestling with and yeah, maybe next week right. I'll have that figured out. We're just not right. sure. The jury's that's still right. out. That's right. But it's yeah. true. 
just accepting our humanity is really a wonderful thing to offer our kids. Yeah. So another way to avoid this or letting go Mm. is self-confronting. And this is a term that you use often that I really love. So can you explain what self-confronting is and how it might play out in this situation? Sure. So first of all, it's a word that Dr. David Schnarch would use all the time. So he's someone that I did uh, mentoring with. And he, another way to explain what self-confronting is basically repentance, right? It's this kind of self-awareness where you recognize that your behavior is misaligned with what you actually believe or feel good about. And so it's, you know, instead of confronting others about their limitations, you're confronting yourself about your limitations. And the only thing about self-confronting is it maybe sounds aggressive. It doesn't have to be aggressive, right? It's more about, I recognize that I'm impairing my child in some way, right? So I am doing something that's working against them, even though I love them and don't want to impede them. So I have to change my behavior. And at the core of any meaningful remorse or repentance is to change your behavior. It's not just, oh, I feel so terrible. It's that I'm actually going to change what I'm doing right now. And so I think that that's like courageous to do that. It's really courageous. Yes. And when parents will do it, their adult children are so grateful, (laughs) like, or, or just children in general are grateful when a parent will actually say, look, I'm, you're right. I've been a bad listener. I'm sorry. Like you deserve better from me and I'm going to try harder. I think that at least helps a child clear up. What's my, what's my job and what isn't my job. And also it shows them that it's okay to be human and it's okay to make mistakes and to just do a little better the next day than you did the day before. That's also a deep gift to give a child that they have the same permission to, to do better and to look at themselves honestly. So it's, if you want, you know, another thing that Dr. Schnarch would say is that it's that the more you need validation from others, the less likely you are to get it. And then the converse, of course, the less likely you need it, the more you are to get it. So that is to say, you know, some people might be like, I'm doing the right thing. I'm not the problem. You and your marriage are the problem, whatever. Okay. That would be like, I'm demanding that you see me as a good parent. Well, when you do things like that, you lose the respect of people around you. You lose your child's respect for you. When you are willing to say, look, I'm doing the wrong thing. I know I'm interfering. I know I've been a problem. Well, that's to invalidate yourself. That's to say, I mean, not fundamentally, but you're saying I have done something that is not good. Well, your child's respect for you goes up. Your trustworthiness goes up. So the paradox often is the more willing we are to acknowledge our, our liabilities, the more trustworthy we are, the more people want to be near us. And so it's a really, really important thing to do throughout life 
And especially, I mean, I think being a mother-in-law is going to be tricky. I mean, I don't, I don't, I think it's going to be hard. They're going to be like, well, she's not that great. She thinks she knows everything about marriage and sex, you know, whatever. (laughs) I just don't think that would be an easy role to do well. But I just don't think it's easy for anybody because to open up your family to know how to relate Mm -hmm. to a child and their new marriage partner, that just takes some stretching and growth. So to be patient with ourselves, but to be willing to think about how can I do this better? How can I be a better parent-in-law? How can I be a better parent of a married child? That's that's where all the good is. It's in our earnestness, not in our perfection. It's in our willingness to um, really do right by the people around us because they deserve it, because we want them to to. We want our children and their marriages to flourish. Yeah. So, yeah. Speaking from personal experience, when my son, he's now 18, but when he was maybe 12 or 13, we had gotten to a point where he just would avoid me at all costs. Yeah. It was not fun. And that's when I was introduced to sort of all the coaching philosophies. And so it's a great example of self-confronting. I realized what I was doing and how I was participating in the dynamic. And so I went to him and said, our relationship is important enough to me that I can see how I'm contributing to this. I'm doing this, this, and this. I want to stop doing that. And you know, if you see me doing it, call me out on it. Like I'm fine with it. And he would. Yes. And the first few times it was like, Oh, <laughs> you're like, well, not you're right. <laughs> but the nice thing is, is it got easier. Yes. And then when he would do things, I'd be like, oh, that's not my responsibility to make sure that you feel connected and loved. Like this yeah. is how I show my connection and love. If you're not interpreting that, I'm sorry. Yeah. And I could hand him back his stuff. Yeah. And really that was the catalyst to create the awesome relationship that we have now. Yeah. Awesome. Is right. is the self-confronting and doing it to that person, not yes. just acknowledging it when I'm alone. That's right. Verbalizing it to the person that you're in the relationship with. Right. Like, to let them actually see your limitations. Mm, That's right. Yeah. To let them know. It's right. A lot of times we want to be like in the secrecy of our own thoughts. Think, oh yeah, that probably wasn't that good of me. Yeah. But we don't so, want to expose it. And that's 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 limits what it can actually do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how do we self-confront? I know for me, it was listening to other coaching and emotional health information. And mm-hmm. I could, and then, and then I identified myself in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yes. So that's one thing like room for two. One of my goals with that podcast yeah. is to allow people in a way to get out of the intensity of being in a, in a coaching or counseling relationship. Which can be very scary. But it can be like scary and you can kind of be defensive and so on. But when you can sort of look to the side, I'm actually preparing a lesson about um, David and Bathsheba for this Sunday. And David, you know, goes and (laughs) sins uh, in this horrific way, right? Yes. But Nathan, the prophet comes to him and says, okay, there's this guy and he does all these terrible things. And David's like, oh, kill the guy. Terrible guy. Okay. Yep. And says, well, it's you. Okay. The point is it's so much easier when our, our minds justify us so easily. I mean, we lie to ourselves all the time 
instinctively, not because we're terrible, because we're human. We, we readily go blind to what we're actually doing. We tell ourselves stories about what our behavior. Yeah. And it well, we masks. don't like the cognitive dissonance. No, we don't. So we and justify it. Yeah. That's right. We like, we, we like to tell ourselves it's not that bad. And then we yep. actually harm people in the process. Yeah. So what Nathan, the prophet understood is take it, bring it to him on the side. Like, don't make it about him because then his ego defenses are going to interfere yeah. with his judgment. So in room for two, it's the same thing. If you can hear it in another story, then it's like, Ooh, okay. I do that. You know, it's like, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's what we're doing in our marriage. And that's a problem. <laughs> And so that the as you say, like seeing yourself in other stories can help a lot. It's also something I teach in my my relationship course is some questions that I took from the book Crucial Conversations. Uh, I can't remember the name of the authors right now, but one of them is what am I pretending? They're self-confronting questions. Mm-hmm. What am I pretending not to know about my role in this negative reality? Yes, I've heard right. you say that question. It's brilliant. Yeah, because it's all like they did this and they did that. And, you know, we can tell yeah. ourselves these stories that kind of make the other person demonic and us good and masks that we are a part of the other person's reactivity. Or another one is why would a reasonable person act the way that my child is acting or my spouse is acting? It doesn't mean that your spouse or child's always reasonable, but there's usually a sense in what they're doing, right? Yeah. And so it's also self-revealing. Like, well, maybe they're tired of me meddling about Christmas. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And so they're avoiding my call. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. And then another one that's in that book is what can I do right now to make this situation better? So that is to get us out of this idea like, oh, well mistakes have been made or kind of like not passive and not going and saying, well, maybe I could apologize. Maybe I could say, listen, I want you to do what's best for you guys for Christmas genuinely, and I will be okay. So, so you move yourself into a new behavior because Mm -hmm. new behavior is the thing that changes our minds most, meaning grows our minds up most is to actually, like you did with your son, go in and say, Hey, I realize what I've been doing. And that's a problem. And I'm sorry. And that's new behavior already. And one more quote from Dr. Schnarch is, you know, you, you don't, you don't think your way into a new way of acting as much as we act our way into a new way of thinking. So as we self confront and see things and we change what we're doing, we can see the world better, right? We can see what's truthful. So going back to that couple, like as he started acting differently, like the world started opening up to him. His marriage is getting better. He could see himself more clearly. He could see the ways that he'd fallen into these kind of um, misunderstandings of what is expected of him as a person. And so his life and marriage got better, but it was through courageously acting in more truthful ways that he could really understand it at a fundamental level. Yeah. One of the questions that I like to ask my clients too, along those same lines is how is this situation benefiting me? Yeah. And at first they're like, what? I don't like this situation. Doesn't. It's terrible. But it's like, oh, but it is validating to be the hero. Or if I'm the victim, it is validating to know that it's all them. Exactly. I'm good. It's them. Absolutely. We love our victim stories. We love them. Yes. yes, What's the upside for me in this? What's the part that tempts me about it? Yeah. And why am I still in it? 
Yeah, because because it does. I mean, that's the thing. When we're doing things, there there usually is an upside, even if it's just like what gets me away from my fear of speaking more honestly or something. You know, even if we're being yeah. victimized by a situation. Often the upside for us is that it allows us to get out of the terror of confronting something more honestly. That doesn't yeah, vulnerability that, is scary. It's very scary, right? So it, it doesn't mean that the upside means that it's truly good, but there's something that's keeping me stuck. There's some benefit. And so the more, as you say, Heather, the more you can see and understand it, then you can it actually allows you to choose more deliberately. Like, okay, I get that I'm afraid of that, or I get that that's an upside. But ultimately, there's a much bigger downside to staying where I am. And so I need to do something differently. Yeah. Yeah. So brilliant. Okay. We're we're hitting our time. Do you have anything else to add? Like any other thoughts about apron strings? Well, I, maybe I would just say like to be compassionate with ourselves in this process and to keep asking ourselves to really fulfill our role as parents by evolving. So I don't think there is a harder role than parenting, not to do well, because first of all, you, every child is different. They need different things. Then they keep growing into different stages and therefore need different things in different stages. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Then you have your own blind spots and your own needs, like the things that you haven't yet gotten resolved that are playing into that. And so to be humble enough to value that process and to stay kind to yourself in it. Um, while striving to do your best is truly heroic work. I mean, it, re- it really is. I, I think, you know, a lot of times we just sort of make parent like a, parenting a given. And to really parent earnestly and in a way where you're really willing to look at yourself, those are the truly fortunate kids. One thing that I know is true, just based on my own experience, but there's also a lot of research around this, is that when parents are... Uh, kids don't do well when parents are like over controlling or under involved, like laissez-faire parenting, like you can do what you want. Kids don't do well in that. And if you're hyper controlling, they don't do well. It's the parents that have high expectations and are responsive. Okay. So they, they want, you, you know, this matters. You need to do this. You have to have your room clean, but they're responsive and they're flexible and they're warm and they care about the child. So they're involved the thing that the research shows is that just a child knowing, like even if you don't do the right thing, but you're calling your child and saying, hey, are you okay? Where are you right now? You know, if the child just is tracking that my parent cares about me and cares about doing their job well, even if they're doing it poorly, which we all will at some point or another, because we just, we're learning on the job. Okay. Yep. (laughs) And so, so, but if the child knows like my mom or dad cares about me and they care about doing it right, even though I, as the child know they're doing it wrong or whatever, that has huge significance for the child. That's the big deal is that that when a child has a parent who's doing the best they can, they're an exceptionally fortunate child. Yeah. It requires a lot of pivots, if you will. (laughs) Yes, it does. There you are. Yes, it does. It takes a lot of pivoting. It takes a lot of saying, wait a minute. It's a willingness to learn and say, okay, I think I'm overcorrecting here or I'm undercorrecting. This used to be appropriate. We've outgrown. Yes. Right. Now my child's different or I see myself more clearly and I'm doing something that's not, not right. 
And so it's just a willingness to keep growing and refining. And and when we pull like our perfectionistic ideas and our kind of idea that, you know, good parents, all their kids just turn out great at all times. I mean, that's just super unhelpful, super unfair to ourselves. And it's that, you know, our desire to do right by our children that really is ultimately the measure. Yeah. Yeah. We really, the key here in all of it is to be able to set our ego or pride aside. Absolutely. hundred percent. And your teenagers will help you with that. <laughs> They're so good at it. <laughs> my teen, my child, like, cause I sometimes have clients that come right to my house and he's right as they're sitting in the waiting room, like child, like you're the worst mother, the worst. Okay. Like, like, yep. Next client, come on into the worst mom. Let me talk to you about how to parent better. It's like, (laughs) you know, if we just can offer 10% better than the next person, like it's a win. Um, Okay. How can my listeners learn more about what you do, how to work with you, all the things? Sure. So if you go to my website, it's the best way to see everything that I offer. And so that's just my last name, which is finlayson-fife.com. And on there, you can learn about Room for Two, the the podcast. Um, You can access conversations like this one. Then I also have my online courses. I have um, a self and sexual development course for men, a self and sexual development course for women, and then two couples courses, and then a how to talk to your kids about sex course. So um, that's all there. And um, and then there's live workshops and retreats and couples tours in Europe and things like that. You can all find out about on the website. So, yeah. Thank you so much, Jennifer. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, we ask that you please rate, review, and share the podcast so that more people can find and benefit from Dr. Jennifer's work.